Howdy, everybody. I'm Robert Cannon, and this is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. Episode 25, Heather Wolfbuck-Garwan. Heather, welcome in. Nice to hey, see you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, nice to be yeah. with you. Meet you? Are you kidding me? No None way. of those are free. I've already met you. I can't see you, and, uh, I know, and I'm not right? with you. <laughs> right, exactly. Liar. Liar. <laughs> Awesome. Heather, um, you uh, I, you have have been someone really instrumental in, in my background in terms of uh, middle school speech, and and I want to talk to you a little bit about your background now, and and get to know how you got involved in speech and where where it all began for you. So can you kind of clue us in? When did you first get involved in in speech, and what years did you you coached primarily? Is that right? Correct. I never competed in speech as a student, so I I was kind of a theater geek. And I did understand the, and as I became a teacher eventually, I really got very passionate about um, verbal communication uh, as well as facial and body gesturing and, and kind of just the importance of communication, right? And, and how one's awareness of communication is a real great equity gap. In mm-hmm. many cases. And so, you know, throughout my whole career as a teacher, and I'm going on teaching for about 20 years now, and um, from minute one, I started becoming very involved in theater or at least theatrical performance and readings and things like that. And um, I soon became involved in a lot of project-based learning, which has defined a lot of the work that I do outside of school as an author, as a speaker and a blogger and things like that. And and for me, performance is project-based learning. Um, and so when I was in a real young teacher, um, debate held a huge interest to me, you know, whether it was teaching sixth grade history and doing, you know, Athens versus Sparta debate <laughs> or, you know, or even um, I remember in language arts doing just something really simple with elementary school students of letters versus numbers, right. things like that. And literally using um, the debate formal structure on these very small simple questions that required little research and more engagement than anything else. And so um, I had started a a debate team early in my career uh, for uh, an elementary school. Um, I also... so when was this? Can you give us a a rough estimate of a time? uh, The 2000s, like early 2000s. Uh, okay. Yeah, something like that. So, um, and I also, my first, so that was a, in a private school. I started an elementary speech and debate class after school, or a club after school. Um, and that was fine and dandy and, and, and a lot of fun. Um, and then I was hired to do, it was really interesting. I was hired to be an elementary school teacher at what was called a micro society school. And in a micro society school, the whole electives program is based on the, um, the element of creating a city. And so every teacher took on an elective that had to do with the running of a city. So maybe wow. one teacher, yeah, it was really fascinating. And it so was you were really... clearly the fire department, right? You would <laughs> right. Just... That was the fire department. Cause you put so out fires. Debate. Yeah, so much debate in the the fire departments. But no, I was court. I was like the legal system. Oh, right, okay. And so I had second graders through sixth graders in this one class, and we were 
the mock trial in a sense. And that really became what we were. We were a mock trial that would use peer mediation in the school. So the kids would kind of like, oh, well, Laron threw this shoe out the second story window. We need we need to be able to handle that and, and talk about it. And he needs to come and talk about his side and the kid whose shoe it belonged to needs to talk about the other side. And then we had a wow, jury. Wow, that's incredible. It was so cool. Um, anyway, from there, um, I, I that was about that was kind of in the Oakland wait, 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 area. wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. We got to slow down a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. First of all, I want I want to get to your background, but I got to pick apart this uh, the student court a little bit more. So this yeah. is second through sixth graders. Second through and, sixth graders. So any kid and, in the school signed up for something in the city they wanted to be a part of. Okay, so your your students. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. So if you said Laurent throws the shoe out the window and he comes in, yeah, does he have representation? Yeah, and he gets to pick the the kid that's in court, you know, in the court class to be his representation. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I want to say I forget who he picked, but it was a just a firecracker of a girl who just really did a beautiful job talking about just kind of what triggered him and talking about you know. Uh, I, I don't remember. Gosh, it's been so long. But I, I, I really, I deeply remember we did a lot of preparation for that particular court um, piece that the kids wrote opening, uh, opening arguments. There were closing arguments. Um, uh, the jury were pulled independently from the rest of the classes. So they weren't, the jury wasn't made up of the court class. The jury was uh, random kids throughout the school of every grade level pulled in for that one lunchtime court. If that that is say. fascinating. And Laron had signed off on allowing, it was like people's court. He had been like, yeah, yeah, I'll deal with whatever consequences the, the student court decides. You know, so there was that element of engagement and fun. The kids were learning how to write and speak. You know, and we used those, you know, those Humpty Dumpty cases. Right. Have you ever seen those? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. <laughs> of course, anyone who teaches mock trial or debate, <laughs> you know, you've seen those along the way. You know, like we kind of use those as an entry event at the beginning of the school year before there were any conflicts to resolve. It almost was like a first step in the restorative practice Uh, pieces that we see now in that it was a lot of this is where I was coming from and and let me air this for you and the person that was doing defense was like and this is where I was coming from and I'm glad to hear you say that and do you remember what the what the result was I mean did what was the was Laurent found innocent or guilty or what was his punishment if found Um, guilty Laurent was found guilty of throwing the shoe out the second story (laughs) window um but I do remember that by the end of it you know kind of everyone had come together understanding each other's points of view which really is the the wider picture right so was there sentencing handed down no there was not said not in the not in the case of the shoe versus the window. There was no sentencing handed down. The people um, versus Laron and the shoe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't think it worked like that. It really, it really was almost a first step into restorative practice. Is that's what it came really awesome. To. I love. It that was idea. really awesome, and you know, in different classes, there was a, the restaurant class, there was a banking class, there was a market class, you know, and it was really a really amazing, amazing. Did you um, have those piece. students? 
I'm sorry to get derailed, but th this is fascinating. No, it I've is never heard fascinating. This it is. Did you did you like trade off? Like, were the people that were in the court class ever go to the restaurant class for a while, or were they just in the court class the entire they time? They signed off for the year. It was like an elective okay. class for a Got year. It. Got it. And so they could rotate from year to year. But um, yeah, so it was just it was really really fascinating. But I did take what I learned in that process, and my next job was um, uh, really to teach speech and debate and mock trial at Jefferson Middle School in San Gabriel, California. So that okay, was the well, kind of that was the gig that kind of gave me some of the resume street cred to get that next that next that jump. next step. Well, yep. let's hold off. Let's pause the story because we're going out of order. I want to get to your <laughs> background. I want to know about where you came from. Where did you grow up and and what kind of performance background did you have? So take us there. Uh, not much. I mean, I had theater background. I really did. I had theater well, background. Theater background. Yeah, that's pretty common, I think, with a lot of people that do speech and debate. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I did high school theater. That's what I did. I did high right. school theater. So um, I did high school theater. Um, I didn't pursue it into college, although I was a Where real- Where was this? Where did you Connecticut. grow up? Connecticut. I, I grew up in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, I went to Connecticut College, go camels. Um, I was not a huge person into school and I didn't keep pursuing theater. I didn't keep pursuing theater, um, but I did join an acapella group. I was like pitch perfect, <laughs> you know, like where I was like, oh my God, I'm so tired of the whole like, you know, dressing in black and white and singing oohs and ahs and where's the beatbox and all that How stuff. How come you didn't really stay with that? It was fun. I mean, it was fun, but I don't know. It just wasn't. I don't. So you're, look, you're Aka over it. I, I, I'm Aka over. I'm never over it. Totally over <laughs> it. But I, there was no. I was. I. Uh, it was only enough to keep me engaged, and that's really what it was all about for me. Right. I was not an engaged student in any way, shape, or form. I became engaged in my tasks when I became a teacher. That's what I realized engaged me. I was so how actually. How did you get into that? Yeah, I was really surprised to actually learn that I wanted to be a teacher, and of course, after that, you know, became you know within that became a coach. But um, I was actually very surprised to learn that I wanted to return to school to get my credential to go into teaching because I was a disengaged student. But I did realize that. Um, my, the disengagement that I had as a student could be leveraged into how to become a, a, an engaging teacher right, yeah. and to do research into how to help engagement in our system of education. Because you know what's boring. You, it, you understand their point of view. I, I can speak to kids who are disengaged. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, yes. I can speak to the, I mean, you know me with my with the speech and debate uh, team that I coached. I mean, I think I can coach those high flyers as well but i i find that i also can you know really relate to those kids that just haven't found that calling yet and aren't naturally finding engagement in just anything you sure. know those kids that are just going to show up to class or show up to a team and be like look i'm going to find what hooks me and just make it great and yeah. then there's the rest of us that are like um yeah, I don't see it. And if I don't see it, I'm not going to be there for it. Well, I've always and that said, was me. That was me. Yeah, I'm, I was very much the same way. And I always said when I taught college, my favorite students were, I called them the thugs, the people that were that just barely didn't go to prison. You know, all their friends are in prison for mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. pretty serious crimes. 
And when those students would come in my class, I would, they were, you know, all usually tatted up and big and, you know, they were like going to murder somebody. And by the end of class, we had this really deep bond and they'd be like, dude, you're the best teacher ever. And I was able to get these students that normally didn't engage to engage. And it was so rewarding. And I loved having those students in class because I knew I could win them over. And I think, I'm not saying that you, you know, that your students were thugs, but I know I really connected with those kinds of students, the students that normally don't engage. And I actually found it more right. rewarding. Right. 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 It, well, I just, it, I, those kids are so neglected so often, you know, yeah. and, and, and in a performance-based class, when you can kind of surreptitiously get the reading and the writing and the, and the listening and the, and the su success skills in there uh, by kind of giving them the skills to speak and mm -hmm. to argue and to say your skill set is valuable and right. uh, that's that can be really life changing, and so that you know that became that became the stimulus. So how did you get into teaching? How did that process happen? So you, you I'm going to be really honest with how what I did and with how I did it, and it I, it's as it's going to sound ridiculous. Ready? So in my late twenties, I I was working. Um, like in the PR department of CBS, you know, mm -hmm. like doing kind of just basic press releases and things like that. And, you know, you can make the argument that it was persuasive writing and that I was doing some editing and I was looking at pacing and sequencing and blah, 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 blah. But the fact of the matter is, is that I was bored and I was a clock watcher and mm -hmm. I, and I looked up and was like, why am I this way? And I literally sat down and I made myself three lists. What am I good at? What do I like to do? Because those are sometimes two different things. And what do I like to wear? Because I did know that physically I wanted to be comfortable during my day. And I didn't want to be like nylons and heels. Like, you know, that was the, some career for that. That probably right. wasn't going to call to me. So, um, yeah, and I literally looked at those three lists. I think I may even have a copy of, because I've written about it before, you know what I mean? I think I kept the copy. It was like on a napkin, right? And um, I looked at it, and I was like, well, crap. I, I almost cussed. Am I allowed to cuss? Okay, anyway. I was like, Yeah, right, thanks. Um, and I was like, oh, crap. I think I've got to go back to school. I think I want to be a teacher. And I was like, <laughs> God. Oh, my God, I can't even imagine the rhythm of school right now. That's how much I just didn't like school. Anyway, but it was the best It was the best decision I ever made in my life, you know, because I found a calling. And I found it by being open to something that just didn't call to me earlier, and I listened to it when it did. So you go back to college afterward? I go back to a credential program. I was holding down three jobs i was oh my gosh yeah yeah i was um like tutoring and homeschooling this kid who was like the daughter of an nba guy uh, mm -hmm. of a nba of player and i was kind of tutoring her and getting cash that way and i without a credential i had found my way into a progressive private school um that there they had a co-teaching model and so i was a co-teacher learning from an amazing, amazing teacher named Suki Werman. And in fact, this, this school to this day 
is the best example of PD, of, of professional development and investment in teacher learning I've ever encountered. It was called the Willows Community School in uh, Culver City, California. And they, they, hmm. they saw my potential and hired me, and, and I was there for a couple years. And, um, Are they and still around? It's totally still around, thriving, great, amazing school. Hmm. And, um, and anyway, uh, and then I was also directing children's theater at the Youth Academy of Dramatic Arts, Yada, uh, in Hollywood. I was their Shakespeare and their advanced musical director, and I did that like on the weekends. And I went to Cal State Northridge for my credential during my weeknights. Wow. And so that was that chapter. We all have those kind of chapters where you're just like, I just got to do everything, everything you can to just kind of get to that next place, right? Where you you try to relax and you watch a movie and you can only watch the first 15 minutes before you fall asleep. Fall asleep or your brain is like, crap, I really got to go do this. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But, you know, you're younger. I don't know if I could do that chapter now. Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah. So then how did you get up? You said you went to the Bay Area. How did that happen? Love, Robert. It was love that brought Uh... me to the Bay Area. Yep, yep. My, my, uh, my dude, my guy, Royce, was, um living up there and i had lived in la I like my, you call him your dude i like he's that. my dude anyway he was living up north and i and i wanted a chapter kind of away from la but you know independent of i you know obviously connecticut was a chapter away but i really wanted kind of an independent adult a chapter away from la uh, which is where my family is and so uh i went up north and taught up there at a number of wonderful different schools um again the the uh the micro society school I was in. And then I went to a suburban school district um, where I was directing theater and, um, and then came back down to LA when it was time to marry and have babies and do all that and be near family. And, and that's when I, I got the job at Jefferson. So you're now at Jefferson and you get hired initially as what an English teacher or I was what kind of teacher English, was it? Correct. I was I was English teacher for part of my day and then I was the speech and debate and mock trial coach, which were two electives at the time. Mm. And I think that ended up being like it was like three periods of ling- English and three periods of versions of forensics. And so that's how that's how um, I became a little more um, I entered into like a more formal competitive scenario in speech and debate. Before I was like kind of just wanting to teach the skill set of speech and debate. Um, and then uh, it was when I joined that league, the league in which I met you, um, that that was really my first time in any kind of competition league. Well, I want to mention something really fast because I think um, I think people who are listening uh, unless they're from the Southern California area, and uh, we have a lot of uh, collegiate listeners who listen oh, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. about college, the college level forensics. And, uh, you know, I think it's really important to understand that Jefferson Middle School is a, it's a very huge program. I mean, you would bring, gosh, sometimes 70 students to a tournament. And, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I mean, and you guys a, were kind to let us compete. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we really liked that. You know, it was if there was ever a tournament where Jefferson wasn't there, it felt empty. And I don't think there were very many that you guys didn't go to. So it, right. it was always robust and it was, and, and everybody did different types of speeches. So it wasn't all flooded into one event. Everybody spread out pretty nicely. Right. Right. We tried. <laughs> we tried. When, when I showed up to the league, I think uh, I, is it Eric Miller had started the league. Is that right? 
Eric Miller, Lee Rosenthal, and I, I had been hired to take over Lee's position after he retired. So I think he, he had something to do with its founding. Eric had something to do with its founding. Yeah, that's, that's and so my it, it was already going when you got there to Jefferson. Is that right? Yeah, some, yeah, it was. It A was. I don't know how old it was by then. I don't, I don't think, like, I think, I don't think it was 15 years old. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I don't right, know right. how old it was at the time, but it was, you know, there was a rhythm to it. There were four tournaments a year. It was just that league they were, that they were competing in. Um, they were, let's see. I, I have to think back then. Um, just four tournaments a year, once a quarter. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, nobody really, traveled if i'm not mistaken i think we hosted almost all of them if i remember correctly i think so too yeah maybe a couple of schools popped in there eventually or whatever when we got on a rotation when we got even bigger as a league um so when you show up to jefferson yeah are they already part of this league they're already part of the league um but the league is really made up of very small schools uh kind of satellite satelliting around the bigger school, which was Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And and everyone was kind of just making things up as they went along, to be honest with you. Like, you know, in terms of like, no one was aligned to, you know, uh, Nats or there weren't state, there wasn't state at the time. Right. Um, not for middle school anyway. Um, we do have a powerhouse um, high school team that we articulate into, um, but there's no need to be in the, the Jefferson team in order to get into the Gabrielino team. You know what I mean? It, 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 right. it, you know, there are kids that do really well at Gabrielino that were never on our team. And then there are kids that are on our team that decide, well, that was a nice chapter and now I'm done. So they were, they function kind of independently. And while I became friends with Derek Yule and, and I have a great respect for what that team was doing, we were working independently because middle school really didn't have, um, a whole it lot wasn't a one-to-one structure. ratio, right? Uh-uh, uh-uh. I mean, right. I think Lee, the guy I was taking over for, I think he might have kept some kind of record of points. But frankly, I didn't do that initially because I was just kind of learning how to get kids to speak well. And to be honest with you, what I focused on first and foremost as a coach was dropping the gatekeepers that got kids into the league that got kids onto the team mm-hmm. um, there. Initially there were, there were GPA averages that needed to be had. There were teacher recommendations that need to be had, but you have to remember, I was thinking through the lens of kids that weren't engaged. And if mm-hmm. you're a disengaged kid, guess what? It's hard to find a teacher advocate. And if you're a disengaged kid, it's really hard to care about your, your grades and your achievement. And, and so one I, could make the argument that they need this activity more than the people heck who yeah, are Heck yeah, they do. Heck yeah, they do. And, you know, and yet it was also challenging for kids that are those high flyers. So it was, we were doing a disservice in terms of equity. We were doing a disservice to kids. We were blocking really talented kids out of the program by forming these gates mm-hmm. that were keeping them away. So that was kind of the sword I was dying on initially and then kind of learning as I go. So when you show up to the league, uh, the, these events are, are already kind of put together for the most part. I mean, there's the, a lot of the events that are there are events that are done at the high school level yeah. already. 
Yeah, you, in one way, Were you way, familiar with these? I mean, there had to be some sort of learning curve where you're starting to... That was how I spent my summer. I spent my summer learning what the heck OI was. I spent <laughs> my summer... At, I knew I had gotten the job in June, and I knew I was starting in August, and I spent my summer looking at videotapes. I spent my summer looking at, you know, uh, and they were like betas. Not betas. No, they were VHS. Mm-hmm. I, spent, I spent my summer... Spent my summer um, getting up to speed with structure because I knew that I could coach content. I knew I could coach writing. I knew I could coach speaking. So then it was about just rule learning and the rule learning are the, are the, are the loop, the hoops that you just jump through in order to participate. Right. You know, I mean, that's why I continuously found myself arguing against uh, you and some of the other coaches about the darn black book. I'm like, I don't understand that rule. Why do we need a black little binder? I don't get it. It doesn't help towards the listening, the speaking, the writing. I didn't get it. But anyway, but it was a rule. It was a hoop. So, <laughs> damn I, black book. I didn't I did, understand that prop at all. When I came into the league, <laughs> yeah. I, remember, I remember the very first league meeting you guys were having. And it was before a tournament. And you were saying, we're having a little coaches meeting. Or maybe it might have been during a tournament, actually, now that I think about it. Maybe the, it was like round one was going and that's during when round we used two, to meet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we would we had this meeting and I remember everybody sitting in beanbag chairs. It was funny because some people were still in like suits and things like some people dressed yeah. pretty nicely. And some people yeah. were, they were still sitting in beanbag chairs. It was really cool. Yeah. And just everybody kind of sat around in a circle and we just talked about, well, what do we want to do? And we kind of chit chatted and it was yeah. great to meet everybody and see like, OK, this is what's going on. And I was like, this is a cool little league. And I remember after probably a a few tournaments, I saw in tab, um, because it it wasn't computerized at all. It was just kind of done by hand. (laughs) And I never did tab, ever. I never did tab. (laughs) There was one person who was running tab. And I remember, I will never forget this, in all my tab days. And this is, he was literally going, um, he was scratching his head. And he was going, "Uh, in round one, this team saw that team. So we'll just mix. He had this little... He had everybody's like cutouts like, like on little cards. note cards, I and know. he would manually Shuffle. just kind of be like, he was like, "I'd like this team to see that team," and it was like, "What are you doing?" Like, there's know. no sense of, no. of like how well someone is doing. Well, it was just you know, like, we had a huge growth spurt as yeah. a league, right? We went to, we went from, you know, you know, a hundred kids to like you know, 250 in like two years, right? Like, you know, for a middle school league, like our middle school tournament, like that was huge. And so, um, well, I remember, I remember introducing, I was like, we need to use computerized software for this. And and people fought me on it. They were like, no, 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 no. We could just do this by hand. And I'm like, you guys are insane. We cannot do that. Right. Right. And I don't remember having a lot of skin in the game because I didn't run tab. I do remember thinking like uh, that this has gotten too big and and unwieldy for those that seem to be running it. And so I I always felt like I'm just going to hand it over to the people that want to do it. Like and and I will continue to host because I felt like since we had the biggest team, like that was probably how I could contribute the best. As, and, and it would allow me to continue having the size team that I had because it was really, really important to me that all my kids competed. Again, I, I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't. And again, going back to that equity thread. Right. I 
really believe that the kids who stunk should still be competing. The kids who were great should still be competing because to me, the secret sauce was that we were a really strong community. Mm -hmm. Everyone applauded everybody. And that only happened because we were allowed to experience the same, we were allowed to have the same shared experiences. It wasn't like, oh, you earned these amount of points, so you get to be on that A team. Right, And right, right. you know what I mean? And you either wait your turn or, you know, you, you just, you're just in this for, you know, an easy, you know, elective. Well, I, one of the things that we had, I, I know as you left the league um, a few years ago, one of the things that you held strong to was the idea of not having any sort of uh, requirements, like restrictions uh, to tournament size and saying like uh, this team needs to restrict their size. And mm -hmm. we, I, I remember like a lot of coaches disagreeing with you on that and you held firm in your belief. You're like, look, I will never vote for this as long as I'm in the league. And I yeah. understood your point. And we, when you left, we took in a vote. We took a vote afterward and it did pass. Like we have a restriction in the league, but we've never had to use it. And I'm really proud that we've never had to use it. We've always been awesome. accommodating to all students who want to participate. We've always made room awesome. for them. And, you know, as you know, sometimes yep. even having, okay, this round is going to be literally on home plate on the baseball field. And so we're going to have a debate oh, yeah. out there. And I like remember crazy having tennis yep. courts and things tennis like that. Tennis courts, tennis. And I, I, I remember um, we were having um, some – I, I don't know what it was HI, but there was there, we were up at one school where we were competing on a lawn and the sprinklers went on and the kids are in their <laughs> suits and everything. And <laughs> good times. I remember good that. Times. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we just all have to sometimes check our hearts and, and sometimes coaches come from a place of competition more than they do, um, you know, more than they do the learning. And that just, isn't where I ever came from. And I think that right. our team uh, did really well, um, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't due to me speaking about the winning. It was, I, to me, it was about the community. We built community. Everything we did on that team was about all boats rise. Everything we do for the lowest helps our highest. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the other things that, um, you may not even realize, but you you also kind of were the face of the league in terms of new people coming in. And I don't oh, even I don't remember how I how I met you or the found out about the league. I can't remember that, but you were very welcoming when I came in, and you were very accommodating. And you oh, kind thank of you. you 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 I I don't I don't think that most people do this. It's usually when you kind of join a league, it's like yeah, just adhere to everything that we're doing and kind of understand what we're already what we're, yeah. we've already said and, and our internal memory and everything else. And of course it's impossible for an outsider. And I'm probably guilty of that too, of not taking the time to really ex explain, here's what's going on and here's what we do. And I really admired you for that because I felt instantly oh, at home. You. And, and well, I really think it's, that's a great face of the league to do um, a p position to, to be in. We, we represent something that's really important. I mean, communication is the skill of the past, present, and future. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You talk to, you know, you know, you go to like the World Economic Forum, right? And, you know, they talk about creativity. They talk about communication. And we know that writing and speaking for college and career readiness is, you know, is there's nothing else that is higher ranked. What we are doing for these kids is giving them a future. 
no mm-hmm. matter what happens with the job market, no matter what happens with colleges and, and, and whether or not they, you know, they, they make themselves obsolete or they put them, they, they can adapt and make themselves very um, relevant in, in the 21st century. The fact is, is that it's all about speaking, listening, reading, writing. And, and um, we as coaches play a huge, important role in giving all kids access. I absolutely agree. I don't know what else to add to that. I mean, you said it so succinctly and, and perfectly. Well, thank you. Um, but, I want to get back to you for a minute. We're on the same team that way, or at least that's I how I felt, you... it, felt about it. Yes, I agree. I want to get back to you and your story. So you're at Jefferson now, and I mean, not as did much you have as I used to be. Of... Not as much as I used to be. Well, I, no, no, I'm, no, I'm, I'm saying at, yeah. in the story. In the story, you're oh, at yes, Jefferson. Yes. You're still coaching. Yes. And what are some of the challenges that you had while there? Now, you, you already mentioned, first of all, there's internal, um, you know, gatekeeping, and assume that's part of Jefferson's restrictions, not part of the league's restrictions. Is that right? Like that's yeah. But you also say, tend to see that in competition, in, co- in competitive teaching, like competitive classrooms, competitive mm. teams, clubs, things like. There's there's always some kind of, you know, fakakta. Uh, gatekeeper of some kind, but uh, to to have our visual and performing arts um, use those gatekeepers is just, it's asinine to me. I don't get it. So (laughs) what struggles did you have while you were there? Um... I don't know. I had a lot of free reign while I was there. I mean, the only, I mean, it's, it's, you know, um, timing-wise, like teaching a performance class you know, you wish you had another break during the day or prep during the day because nothing really happens just in the school day. You know, you always need more to happen and you always need to continue coaching. And, you know, and you always get to know kids more in situations like that. And so you're invested in the hearts of these kids in a bigger way than maybe your average core content classroom in some ways. Uh, but, um, and that, but that, even that's not necessarily true. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know about challenges that I had when I was in the midst of coaching other than, you know, um, I mean, I, I feel like sometimes I would come up against coaches that just didn't see things as I did that, that was frustrating as hell, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, we just kind of didn't share the same philosophies. Um, and you know, and I just feel like as adults, we have to pass on, the the heart as well as the competitiveness so why why are we trying to pass on the ugly that's that's not good right um what what led to the decision to pull back and hand over the reins um i got a little tired of of just the um i don't know i just got a little tired of the micro decision making and i was finding myself as a professional writer and speaker starting to think about the macro in education. So I started kind of pulling my own lens back and seeing where these skills, where these kids, where these classes fit into the bigger picture of transforming our schools. And so I do a lot of innovation work with my district now, and I do a lot of innovation work in different think tanks and organizations um, across the country. And uh, I've written a book on student engagement based on 
research um, and um, a survey I conducted of sixth through 12th graders, um, a nationwide survey of sixth through 12th graders and asking them kind of what engages them about learning. Um, and so I just started to become a little more interested in those macro issues hmm. um, and in the hopes that I can have, I can continue to have an impact um, on the classrooms. I want to talk a little bit about project-based learning, and that's something that you are, I mean, a big advocate of. Tell us about, mm -hmm. first of all, what is that and what does that entail and what's your yeah. involvement in it? So project-based learning is really taking authentic real-world problems and allowing students to develop the, question, the questions and the answers to design solutions for those problems. So can, can you give us an example of that? I suppose I could. Um, Let's see, you know, anything from uh, a student, like in a science class, um, uh, how do we solve the issue of our local waterways and pollution? Mm. Or it can be, um, you know, I know of a teacher who uh, is a PBL Works consultant who uh, took his uh, uh, chemistry class and they studied um, the different... Um, influencers in Flint, Michigan, and actually stumbled on something scientists hadn't thought about when they were testing the waters in Flint, Michigan, and they ended up publishing their piece as a class, as a high school class, uh, based on their research. Um, wow. In a more, maybe in a more fantasy land version, um, I designed um, a superhero PBL unit where the kids got to role play as superheroes and created their own origin stories created their own superhero leagues and then tried to solve uh, a global issue of their choice by speaking in front of a mock UN. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's deep. It involves a lot of role playing. It involves a lot of uh, success skills like collaborating and communicating, um, creativity, creative, critical thinking. Um, but PBL is, it's it's how we live our life. We we are living right now. We are living a PBL unit. All of us, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. And and people are stepping up. Teachers are stepping up. Students and parents are stepping up, and really experiencing their learning together to solve a uniform uh, a universal problem. We are living project based learning right now. So the Laron shoe throwing, I mean, is kind of mm -hmm. that. That is a great example in and of itself of project-based learning. And any debate you have is a is a PBL debate. You know, as long as you're giving it up to the students and you're not one of those coaches that are telling the kids what they have to answer, what they have to ask, and how they have to say it, mm -hmm. then you are you have a. a a PBL mindset. So a PBL mindset as an as a coach or as a teacher would be. Um, absolutely student choice and agency um so student decision students involved in the decision making process um it is all about um they learn throughout the journey and they are assessed throughout the journey not just like in a quiz or a test at the end of a unit mm -hmm. um and it's really about standing back and being a coach and not the authority of a teacher and, and so what is the maker movement? What is that? 
Ah, the maker movement. Maker movements are fun. So one of the PBL units I ran was called the Invention Convention. I don't think I invented the name, but I designed all the curriculum for it. And basically, it's a design-based learning unit where kids get to solve the irksome uh, problems that exist in their homes and their schools. And you know, for me, uh, we talk about the kids maker movement, you know, the the ability to have them design things that can solve problems. But in my view, the teacher maker movement is in designing and revising curriculum mm. in order to bring student agency to the table. So <clears throat> basically involving students more in what the curriculum design looks like. Yeah. Am I understanding yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, they ask questions. So for instance, the PBL unit I did this year was based on fan fiction. So the kids identified the fact that fan fiction websites suck, that they have no quality control, and they are arguably, they can be very adult, right? Very X-rated sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so they're not safe for kids. And so we... Um, we decided to study fan fiction, good quality fan fiction, write fan fiction, and then we became the editors for other students' fan fiction that were trying to submit to a website that we designed so that we could host tween and teen-centric fan fiction that was safe and high quality. So how, does, how do you begin that conversation with a classroom i mean do you do you say what interests you i mean what if this class is not interested in fan fiction well i surveyed them and you know and, and their statistics aligned with some of those research i had done ahead of time which was more than 10 percent of teens are already reading and engaging in fan fiction mm. so i had some buy-in from those who are already experiencing it and the ones that are interacting with fan fiction are not always the high flyers it seemed to be a very diverse group of kids and so we had buy-in from kids that represented lots of different demographics and lots of different learning levels and things like that. So that that helped. And then we literally just interviewed the kids that were interacting with it and asked them questions. And then we developed the questions we wanted to have answered from there. And from there, the kids said, well, we got to develop a website. Like, we have to develop a website. There's nothing else that exists right now. And that's kind of how it went. And that became our language arts class for, you know, almost the whole first semester. And we got to fit in the, the novels we were reading. You know, we were reading Frankenstein. So, okay, we did some fan fiction based on Frankenstein. And, you know, we read Ray Bradbury and Sound of Thunder. And, you know, that stuff's, it's fun. It's fun. That's, I, I think that's so compelling. And that role play, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think you've got this background of theater and also speech and debate. And those two really are strong backgrounds for what you're teaching. Absolutely. Can you talk about... Can you talk about the role that that speech and debate has helped play in creating the project-based learning? Yeah, I mean, look, project-based learning typically ends with presentation. Now, it doesn't always have to be um, a big convention, right? Like the invention convention, right? It doesn't have to be um, right. on the stage of the Elks Lodge, you know, the a local Elks Lodge. Um, it can be a recording. It can be a PSA. It can be um, a, a public product like a website. But regardless, it's going to involve a pitch of some kind. It's going to involve talking together, convincing each other, um, you know, debating. It when, when, in what industry are you not using those skills? So right. if I want my 
language arts classes to be aligned with real world skills, I have to bring in speech and debate skills for that. I, I'm not doing my job. And I would argue no core classroom is unless they are bringing in those skills because our job is no longer to just teach when a particular war happened or what the answer to equation an equation is. Our job is to teach how to communicate one's content. That's mm -hmm. how we're going to create people that make an impact in their life. And that's really what PBL is about is how do we get kids to make an impact in the world beyond school with the skills that they have learned in school? Well, do you feel like I'm, there's, I don't know, education is changing so much just because I mean, our world is changing and you still have a lot of instructors and administrators who are kind of stuck in this 1950s style uh, approach of learn these dates, learn these math problems, learn, learn this stuff. Whereas, I mean, the Internet alone, if you want to know when what year the Revolutionary War began, right, you can go to Wikipedia you. and find that out. Exactly, right? exactly. So, I mean, our, our world has changed and learning those dates, you, you no longer need to be a walking encyclopedia because we all have an encyclopedia in our pocket. Right. So, I mean. So it's all about the, skills. Right. It's all about skills. And I think that, I mean, what you're describing is a 21st century mindset. Yeah. It's a different yeah. approach. Yeah. And I think there are people that are just stuck in this, this repetitive kind of um yep. antiquated idea yeah and you know i gotta tell you um as there are people stuck in that antiquated idea there are teachers that are stuck in that antiquated idea um but there are more and more of them who aren't and i will also say that there are coaches stuck in that antiquated idea sure, do, you know yeah. what i mean do it this way speak to this um speak to this method things like that but the fact is, is that I think if we come at things with us, with the students in, 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 in mind, if they are, if we are truly student centered and we keep our eye on the ball about what we are supposed to be preparing our kids to do, we are, um, we have to give, what does Alfie Cohen say? We have to give kids choices or they're not going to learn how to make decisions. Mm. So that's really what PBL is about. And to me, that's what 21st century teaching and learning is about. Um, and I will also say in terms of 21st century teaching, we have to also leverage our own ignorance to teach lifelong learning. And that means... What do you mean by that? Yeah, that means kind of getting ourselves out there and not being scared to talk about or learn with the kids mm -hmm. on subjects that we don't really know anything about. I didn't know anything about 3D printing, but I was going to learn with the students if we were going to be using 3D printers to invent inventions to create little inventions. Right. And so you got to be vulnerable as a teacher if you're going to like model being okay with being vulnerable. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think, um, I think a lot of teachers that I've run into, I think there's so much unspoken power that's at play. And I think some teachers get involved with teaching for other than educational reasons you know i mm -hmm. think there's a little bit of they get off on a power trip and you you know they they boss people around for you know 30 people for the majority of the day and for them to look weak threatens that that power well and i'm I think hoping what, if there's a shift happening and to be honest the i hope silver, so too the silver lining of what we're going through right now is is that everyone has been forced 
to transform in one way mm-hmm. or another, even if it's by a slight increment. And so we've got this universal vulnerability happening, and that's bound to have some positive impact, even while it's creating such great sadness as well. Yeah. Well, uh, Heather, this is fascinating. I want to ask you 10 questions that I ask every guest. Oh, my God. We haven't even gotten to the 10 questions yet. Oh, my God. We haven't gotten to the 10 okay, questions, okay, but okay. we are now. So this okay. next segment is brought to you by ForensicsTournament.net. ForensicsTournament.net oh, we love is a... ForensicsTournaments.net. Yeah, we do. If you're hosting a <laughs> tournament and you, uh, you plan on uh, having some very easy-to-use software, I recommend using ForensicsTournament.net. Uh, it's a great website to host all of your upcoming tournaments, so check out ForensicsTournament.net. Even I, even I learned how to use ForensicsTournament.net. And you don't even tab. I know, and I don't even tab. Exactly. I somehow got out of being a speech and debate coach, never learning how to tab. Always just hard. trusting you guys. I literally just handed it over to the competing coaches, and I was like, you guys do it. Uh, if you're using <laughs> ForensicsTournament.net, it is very easy. All right. That's, I know, I know. So, Heather, these 10 questions we ask every guest that comes on the show, this is the final round. All right. Question number one. Were you superstitious in speech? Um, as a coach, we had kind of a, a weird, like, Maori kind of chant that we did, but uh, in order to kind of build community. Um, but that, that, that was something driven by the students. Do you remember what it was? No, I don't. I remember it was a lot of stomping and clapping and like and things like that, and and that went from uh, from class to class. Although one class is we did the hustle at every tournament. I don't know. <laughs> I, again, student choice. It was like, okay, what do you guys want to do for good luck? You know. I remember um, Jefferson. They've always had an issue, and I don't. This sounds like I'm complaining, and I I, I just I like it, but the students at Jefferson. Uh, during awards, it's a wall of sound when someone from Jefferson wins an award, and it is this <sighs> only middle school girls can make this sound. Oh my and god, it I is know. a high pitched squeal. There's nothing of like a middle school girl, I know, <laughs> but it's a middle school girl's Somebody. squeal that is so yeah. it's 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 a piercing sound, but yet yeah. still somehow pleasurable because it's like, man, they're so excited, they're having so much so fun. So right excited, now. yep, yep, and it was a big team. It was a big when, team. When a Jefferson student won an event, you better plug your ears. <laughs> it's really true. I know. We tried <laughs> to do the single clap. We really, really did. We tried. Uh, question number two. Who was the competitor you most admired? That would be Robert Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> you've know, never seen me compete no you're right well I, I i did i watched that youtube video of you when you were younger though i did i did watch that um and i think you sent that to me um actually to illustrate how to use the damn binder you were like well check this out it's the binder and i'm like oh you're using it as a prop got it okay um uh who did i most admire as a competitor um, I don't know. I'll have to pass because I didn't compete. You know what I mean? I can speak to coaches, but not necessarily competitors. Well, I mean, you could either say a competitor that you had seen or, you know, you'd worked with or a coach. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I mean, I always, I always liked working with Mike Kyle. I always thought mm-hmm. he was kind of a combination of competition and community building and, and kind of had the kids at heart. All right. Question number three. He was a guest on the show a few weeks ago. Awesome. Uh, question awesome. number three. What's the most memorable speech or debate you've seen? Um, 
gosh, what, you know, I hate what pops to, to mind. Well, unfortunately, it's memorable was the you know the the ones in the 2016 election, but not necessarily for great reasons. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think. Um, I mean, that unfortunately, I have a lot of negative associations with debate and I feel and I and I have to say and and you're going to have to forgive me on this one, Robert, um, but I I think the whole speed talking debate structure is is an absolute detriment to the, the sport. Why would I forgive you? I totally okay. agree. Yeah, because uh, well, totally coaches are like, you know what I mean? I gotta get my points. I gotta get my points, and you know, you never know about. And then there are coaches that are like, I hate this, but this is our only way of like being on par with other teams. And my feeling is like, I just I couldn't. No, it ruins the activity. It ruins the purpose of the activity. You know, yeah. uh, you know. Anyway, so I would say that that style of debate to me is absolutely not real world style of teaching at all. Hmm. Ah, All right. Okay, Question number four: How do you explain forensics to somebody who's unfamiliar with it? Um, I explain it as um, based on the realm of communication. That it is. Uh, speaking and listening at its finest, that it is communicating all content areas, um, that it allows students to pick topics that they want to uh, speak on and argue about. Um, And so it is a sport based on the art, not language arts, but the art of language. Wow, a sport based on the art of language. That's really, I like that. Thank you, thank I might, you. Thank I might steal that. No, you can't steal it. It's on a, It's being recorded right now. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> you I'll can delete use this it. part out. You can use it. <laughs> Stealing it. Wow. Question number five. What was your most unusual inspiration for a speech? Um, uh, I, I have to say that there was this one kid years ago. I want to say it was like my second, second year, maybe first year at Jefferson which was, I want to say, when did I get to Jefferson? 2004, something like that. And he wrote a great speech about um, being panda and the whole concept. And he was a kid who kind of looked panda-like. Like he, you know, he kind of looked like the Jack Black character in Mm -hmm. Kung Fu Panda. He had those qualities about him. And he literally kind of used the word panda to be, to mean, uh, as a metaphor for being kind of chill and and a sage. And so his whole speech was about, you know, are you panda? How can you be panda? <laughs> Examples of being panda. And it just really worked. The kid knew who he was, and which is rare in a middle schooler, you know, because yeah. middle school is all about testing and trying out who you are. And so... Um, it was just a cool speech. I just remember, and it was a kid who won nothing all year and yet came out with this last quarter speech, and we were like, there you are, man. You you are. You are Panda. That's really interesting. I love mm-hmm. that story. <laughs> all right. Question number six. Has a speech or debate ever caused you to change? Um, oh God, I don't know. I don't think – I don't know. Maybe. I think the whole – I think the whole relationship I had with the Jefferson team and with the coaches in the league, I think that was a huge transformative chapter for me in my life. And so I would say that being involved with speech and debate has changed my life. Oh, that's nice. Eh. Being involved with speech and debate. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you did there. I like that little twist on this. See, because I'm thinking macro. Question number seven. What did you do with your awards? 
I, I have all, I, well, okay, the awards that the kids win, they take. Mm-hmm. The awards that the team wins, I have given to Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And um, the awards, you know, those various little awards that like classes buy for you sometimes, or like mm-hmm. when I retired were given to me or whatever, they are they are with me. Um, you don't have the camera on, but I am surrounded by them. They they remind me of of who I am and who has believed in me and where I've come from and, and the impact I've made. Well, I, I mean, I know our league named a tournament after you yes. uh, after you left and we gave you an award. So I and hope my, that's up there somewhere. It is. It is. And that, and that was that, that is a huge moment for me, especially because my kid was at that tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not mistaken. And he, he knew of it. Like, I think he had been let in on what was going on and, I think he sat next to me when I got it and I was crying and I looked over and my, my kid was crying and it was just something I shared with him. It was really yeah. cool. And you're not even dead yet. You got a tournament. Named I after know. You. I know. I don't even have to have like a tree at the school or anything like that. <laughs> awesome. Question number eight. Yeah. What speech skill do you use most often in your day-to-day life? Um, I would have to say word choice. Word choice. Yeah, word choice. I mean, I think I I tried to be intentional and I screw up, but if we stop thinking about, and this is an example of where the micro maybe sometimes could be more important than the macro. If you stop thinking about, oh, this is the idea I have to get across, and you start thinking about the how I'm going to get it across, maybe we can all be a little more um, precise in how we speak to each other. I like that. Mm-hmm. There you go. I like how you were precise in explaining that. I tried that. because I it just occur- the answer just occurred to me, and I was like, wait a minute, I think I think about words a lot. Yeah. Question number nine. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't I quit? Mm-hmm. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, it's in your blood, you know, and because the skills are everywhere. You don't quit speech and debate. All of, all of life uses speech and debate. You don't escape it. So – Learn to get good at it. Man, I wish I could just, I'm going to pull that out and just use that as a, <laughs> right? you don't quit speech and debate. There's no quitting in speech and debate. <laughs> There's no quitting. You use it for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. And you know the people who have used it. Those Parkland kids, mm-hmm. those Parkland kids. There you go. There's there's a speech and debate turning point moment. There's a reason that they got in front of those mics after their trauma. You know? Yeah. Question number 10. This is my favorite. What was the best speech advice you've ever received? I don't know about the speech advice I ever received because I worked a lot in isolation trying to find my way with speech. But I think the best speech advice that I could give, if you don't mind me spinning the question a little bit. Sure. You can do whatever you want. Is um, build your community first. Community before competition and you'll win, but you'll also um, create um, people that make an impact on the life after school. That's beautiful. There was a lot of wisdom in your your answers today. That's, maybe that's because I'm panda. <laughs> <laughs> you are so panda I'm right so now. So panda right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> There Heather, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, if people want to find you, where can they where can they find you? Um, 
let's see. Well, I am still a staff writer for the George Lucas Educational Foundation's edutopia.org. I blog under tweenteacher.com. And um, and uh, I'm just I'm just around, man. I'm well, just you got around. a Twitter handle. You got I do a have a Instagram. Twitter. I do have a Twitter handle. My my Twitter handle is Tween Teacher, um, and I am always on Twitter and and you know functioning through PD and all that stuff. So be my guest. Reach out to me anytime, and I'm happy to talk speech and debate with anybody. That sounds good. And uh, as for us, we are also on Twitter and we're also on Instagram. So if you want to find us there, you can reach us. Our handle is at Forensic Podcast. Heather, thanks so much for coming on. This is great talking to you. Thanks for having me, Robert. It was such a joy and and it always is. I've always enjoyed working with you, man. Absolutely. So until next round, keep talking. And as Heather Wolpergauren says, build your community first. Got the same funk old world charm. I don't know.